from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our Old Testament reading comes from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 12. Please turn with me to page 642 of the Old Testament. Listen for and hear the word of the Lord. Who has believed what we have heard, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others. A man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, and as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he has done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain when you make his life an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find a satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous and he shall bear, the iniquity, bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the this, this spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ward. Our second text uh, sets us up for another uh, edition in our Lenten sermon series called Characters at the Cross. Uh, today we focus on uh, the two criminals who were crucified on either side of Jesus. For that telling, we turn to the Gospel of Luke, the 23rd chapter, verses 32 to 43. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. When they came to the place that is called the skull, Golgotha, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to welcome all the children who are worshiping uh, with us uh, today. I know that some are on spring break, but I have seen some of you. If you want to make your way down for godly play, there's Miss Katie right here in the front. Break open this word afresh to us, O oh Lord, so that we'd be changed, that we'd be challenged, that we would be different people than those who came into the sacred space or who tuned in for worship this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Every once in a while, it's good for a preacher to throw a bone to all the English majors uh, and literary majors in the sanctuary. Uh, I wonder if uh, some of you would be able to define a literary device known as the foil. Nod your head if you know what that is, you English majors, you writers. Uh, the foil is a device that's used by authors uh, to highlight attributes in another character. Attributes and characteristics and qualities that are opposite of uh, this other character, the foil. So the foil has characteristics and qualities that are different, that are posing from the main character, or the character that the author wants you to focus on. The term itself comes from the, the practice of putting foil behind a gemstone when you set it in jewelry. This was a popular technique in the 17th and 18th centuries and the jewelry maker would set the stone against the foil to enhance uh, the shimmer and the shine of that particular stone. Well, in literature, the foil illuminates the individualities and qualities of another character. Um, and I was thinking about the, the, the myriad of examples that I could lift up and knowing that I'd be preaching to an intergenerational uh, group, I thought it would be best to just elevate one uh, example uh, from the book and series Harry Potter. Very accessible for us today. Uh, in, in Harry Potter, Draco Malfoy is the foil. He, he's the foil uh, to Harry. Draco's heart is revealed to be evil as he hunts power and aligns himself with Lord Voldemort. Whereas Harry's heart is revealed to be good as he seeks to use his power to destroy this evil one and put the world right. Now, interestingly, the gospel writer Luke uh, we could say maybe was a little bit ahead of his time before we even began to use this idea of foil to evaluate literature. Luke was using this particular device throughout his gospel telling. Luke's Jesus is often putting characters in juxtaposition. For example, you turn to Luke chapter 6. 
And we're introduced to the one who hears Jesus' words, one who hears Jesus' teachings, but does not act on them. And he's like a, a foolish person who builds their house without a foundation. And so when the, the river uh, crests and the floodwaters come, it destroys the home. But in juxtaposition, the one who hears Jesus' words and chooses to act on his teaching is like a wise person who built their home on top of a foundation. When the floodwaters come, the house stands firm. Fast forward four chapters to the 10th chapter of Luke, and you have a famous parable, one that church folk and non-church folk know, the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man was robbed, beaten, and left for dead on the side of the road. A priest and a Levite see the man in distress, but they cross to the other side. They do not act with love toward their neighbor. They refuse to help him. Then, out of nowhere, the juxtaposition comes. A Samaritan, a religious outsider, uh, someone who was on the margin, uh, they show up, and they are the ones that move uh, toward the man who was beaten and broken down by the side of the road. Fast forward five more chapters to another famous parable of Jesus, the parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15. A man who had two sons, and, and one of the sons, the younger son, went and took his uh, inheritance and, and squandered it. And as he was hungry and he was longing to to, to eat the slop the pigs were eating, he came to his senses and said, how many of, of my father's household have food enough to eat? And here I am craving what the pigs eat. And so he, he decides that he's gonna go back to his father's house. He rehearses a mea culpa speech, but as he makes his way, the father rushes toward him and embraces him. Says, this son of mine was dead, but now is alive. He was lost, but now he is Found and he throws him a huge party. But the older brother was perplexed by the mercy and grace extended to his unworthy younger sibling. And he was so uh, perplexed that he was compelled to confront his father. And he said, I've always been with you. I've been faithful to you, but you never threw me a party. And the parable ends with us wondering if the older brother is actually gonna go, come in. If the older brother is going to come in and celebrate the grace and mercy that has been extended to this brother of his that was once dead but is now alive. Go two more chapters into Luke 17 and you find that Jesus is stopped by 10 lepers, which he eventually heals. They go back to the priest to show him that they were made well by this rabbi called Jesus. Of the nine lepers, however, only one comes back to Jesus to thank him for the gift of healing that he had offered. And Jesus said, weren't there 10 lepers? Where are the other nine? Jesus then celebrates the one who returned and says, get up, your faith has made you well. Go ahead one more chapter in Luke 18 and Jesus tells another parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, Jesus said, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, 
a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. In all these examples, you don't need to be a literary major, an English major, to identify the foil in these stories. The one who hears Jesus' words and does not act on them is the foil to the one that does. The priest and the Levite are the foil of the Good Samaritan. The stubborn, prideful older brother is not the foil of the younger brother. He's actually the foil of the father. He's the foil of the father, the gracious and merciful one. The nine ungrateful lepers are the foil of the one leper who returned to thank Jesus and offered his praise to God. The Pharisee was the foil to the tax collector. The two criminals crucified on either side of Jesus fit then with Luke's storytelling, its cadence and its rhythm. Their juxtaposition by Luke in this story is intentional and we ought to pay attention to it. On one side of Jesus was a criminal that for all intent and purposes sounds just like every other character that has showed up on the way to the cross. Luke tells us that this criminal derided him. Literally, the word means to slander someone. Are you not the Christ? Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. Prove it. But the other criminal, we're told, rebuked him. And here's the juxtaposition. He said, do you not revere God? We've been condemned justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then the criminal turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In the same way that Luke's Jesus draws our attention to the wise person who built their house on the foundation, to the good Samaritan, to the gracious father, to the grateful leper, to the penitent tax collector, our attention now turns, is fixed on the second criminal. Like the others, he becomes a model response for us. He recognizes Jesus' innocence and turns to Christ in humility during the hour of his greatest need, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so the juxtaposition that is set up by Luke between this first and second criminal invites us to consider what our response might be to this one who's crucified. To this one who's crucified in the gap between rebellion and repentance. Now, the juxtaposition of the two criminals isn't the only foil in this particular story. Luke actually introduces a more subtle yet symbolic foil that's embedded in the conversation, that's embedded in the exchange between Jesus and this second criminal. Jesus, remember me, the criminal says, when you come into your kingdom. Lest we forget that Jesus' entire ministry was about inaugurating, ushering in the kingdom of God. That's what he was all about. God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. And while some did embrace that message and followed him, many did not. And those that did not persecuted Jesus and led him to Golgotha, a hill called the skull, to be crucified. So what they did in response to this message of the kingdom, they created Golgotha. They created the place of the skull and took Jesus there. But the second criminal believed that Jesus' kingdom would still come. 
He still believed that Jesus was worthy. He still believed that Jesus had the power to usher this kingdom in, despite all the evidence that was around him, despite what they were experiencing on that hill called the skull, that God would redeem that broken moment and that God would redeem those broken people. And then Jesus says to the criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't say, today you'll be with me in the kingdom of God. Also interesting, he doesn't say, today you will be with me in heaven. I'm sure many of us throughout the years when we've read this text, we just automatically assume that this is heaven that Jesus is talking about. But friends, there is a Greek word for heaven and it doesn't show up in this text. If Jesus wanted to say heaven, Luke would have told us that's what he said. But instead he uses the Greek word for paradise. And that word only shows up three times in the entire New Testament. Three times. One of the occurrences is found in the book of Revelation, the second chapter, verse 7. And it reads this. To the victorious in the faith... I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Now, friends, when you hear that text, you're good Sunday school folk. What do you think of when you hear that text? My hunch is you think of immediately in your mind of the Garden of Eden. You think of that garden where there's another tree that's planted in the center, a tree that has the knowledge of good and evil. And I believe that Jesus and Luke are trying to communicate something very particular to us in this conversation. The Greek word that we translate as paradise literally, literally means garden. It literally means garden. So Jesus basically says, today you will be with me in the garden. So if you're a first century hearer or reader of this text... And you know the long arc, the the long story that begins in, in Genesis in the garden, but through disobedience and through sin of Adam and Eve, that they're cast out of the garden, your imagination immediately turns that that Jesus is saying that the garden is possible. That Golgotha isn't the final word. And in that way, Golgotha is the foil to the garden. Golgotha means darkness. The garden means light. Golgotha means division. The garden means reconciliation. Golgotha means violence. The garden means peace. The garden means an embrace of the will of God. Golgotha means the rejection of it. The garden means right relationship with God. Golgotha means separation. When Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, what if he didn't mean, today you'll be with me in heaven? What if it was more symbolic? What if Jesus wasn't being literal here? What if he's calling the criminal and all of us to turn our attention back to the garden, to that right relationship that Adam and Eve had with God? When God walked with them in the garden, in the coolness of the day, a symbol, an image, a metaphor of atonement, of that oneness, of homecoming, of being connected, of being reconciled. What if Jesus is saying that today you are in right relationship. Even though you hang on this cross, 
Even though the sky has turned dark, even though Golgotha is getting the best of us, you are in right relationship. For I have made a way. I have made a way for you to be justified to God. Author Fleming Rutledge once wrote, from beginning to end, the Holy Scriptures testify that the predicament of fallen humanity is so serious, so grave, so irredeemable from within that nothing short of divine intervention can rectify it. In other words, nothing but a divine act of God can take us from Golgotha back to the garden. I'll close with this story. Uh, a few weeks ago, Trisha Pasuth, our director of community ministries, told our staff a story about a woman our team has been trying to help for a couple of years now. This woman, I'm going to call her Sharon in this story. Uh, Sharon has struggled with uh, some mental health issues, which created for her a certain baseline level of paranoia. And one of the results of her paranoia was she never wanted to tell anyone her real name. She never wanted to tell anyone her real name. She's been living on the, the streets under an alias. Uh, she has a very gentle and kind and uh, wonderfully uh, compassionate man who helps her along the way. And our team has wanted to help her. They, they, they wanted to be able to secure her identification so that she can get into the process of finding housing. But she wouldn't give our team her name. She wouldn't budge on that. And so we just couldn't help her. A few weeks ago, her companion came to Trisha and said that Sharon wasn't feeling well, and so they made their way to Grady Hospital. They went to the ER, and when she was checking in and when she was talking to the person who was doing registration, she actually gave her real name. She gave her real name. He then told it to Trisha, and Trisha, who's, we've come to discover, really good at this, went into PI mode, private investigator mode, she opened the search engine on her laptop and typed in Sharon's proper name. Eventually, she was led to a national database for missing persons. And it turns out that Sharon has been missing from Michigan since 2004. As Trisha continued the search, she found a Facebook page set up by Sharon's aunt in the hopes that someone would have information about her niece. Within 30 minutes after Trisha sent a DM, a direct message to the aunt, she got a phone call from her. And she said, you're not going to believe this, but Sharon has two adult sons living in Marietta, Georgia. Is that far from you? So Trisha got her son's number and she called them and she invited them to come to campus, which they did. Now they hadn't seen their mother since they were four and five years old. Four and five years old. Uh, Trisha had no idea when Sharon would come back to community ministry. She didn't keep a regular schedule in terms of her showing up here. So she told the young man, she was out in the pre-function area just outside of Fifield Hall, she told the young men that, that, that she would call their cell phones if and when Sharon showed up on campus. Now, Trisha, as I said, is telling them in the pre-functionary, in the hallway outside of Fifield Hall, when all of a sudden from the, around the corner, a woman appears, and it's Sharon. And she walks right through their huddle into the bathroom. Trisha lost her breath for a second. She composed herself, and she said, guys, do you know who that is? She said, that's your mom. 
Sharon came out of the bathroom. She said, Sharon, do you know who these men are? And she said, probably someone from my past. She said, Sharon, you're right. These are your two sons. And she looked at them and immediately called them by name and got them right. Rakim, Caleb, and the three embraced. Our team, now with her proper name, is trying to get her housing, and these men come and visit with her weekly at the church. This family that was once divided has been reconciled. This one who's been lost has now been found. Friends, Golgotha reminds us in this season of Lent just how lost we are. We're reminded in the season of Lent that we're a long way from paradise, that we're a long way from the garden. With all its disorientation, with all its darkness, with all its division, Golgotha seems to be both our choice and our destiny. In the first criminal, even while he's perishing, even while he's being crucified, he joins the other voices deriding and slandering Jesus and mocking him. But in the second criminal, we see someone who recognizes his own complicity in creating the Golgothas of the world, and he admits that he wants another world. He admits that he's looking for something else. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what Jesus delivers is a word of hope. That disorientation, that darkness and division that is so paramount in Golgotha will not be the final word. That paradise is possible, which is to say that reconciliation is possible, that homecoming is possible, that right relationship is possible, that atonement with God, with ourselves and with others is possible. For those that long for, for paradise, that for those that long to be sort of released from the Golgothas of our lives and the Golgothas of the world, our attention turns to that second criminal that says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus offers him uh, the opportunity to be right with God, the opportunity to be right with Christ, the opportunity to be right with himself, to know who he is, where he's gone astray and where he needs to be forgiven. And so I invite us to, to think about what it means to, to say that same thing to Christ. Remember me when you come into your kingdom uh, and to hear him say today, things are right. Even though darkness is all around, I'm with you and for you and we're in right relationship with one another and I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So for those that long for that paradise, who long for that garden, let us learn to speak what the criminal spoke. Jesus, remember me. And now as we go, may the peace of Christ, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds. May his peace live inside of you this day and every day ahead. Amen. Don't forget about Stephanie's reception following the choral benediction.